People make it seem like the support in the NHS by just clapping. Like at least 3% of the population, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be part white. Pretty painful considering there was a lot of hope around the 2017 election and I'm sad that all the effort put in was kind of wasted. First up on Switchboard this week, it's Cambridge and Beyond, the segment where we take a look at one big story in Cambridge news and explore how this relates to events beyond the uni by talking to some of the people behind the headlines. This week we delve into the story of 265 Cambridge medics graduating early to support the NHS as it responds to the coronavirus pandemic. To our graduands in medical sciences, our class of 2020, I know that this is not the graduation that you expected, but this is a very special graduation for the university. These are exceptional times, and you are exceptional people. By graduating early, you are making history. You are the first medical students to do so in the peacetime history of this nation. You are graduating under extraordinary and difficult circumstances at a time of great national need. You are ready. You studied medicine because you want to help others. So use your knowledge, skills and experience. Use your intelligence, good sense and initiative. And most of all, use your empathy, understanding and compassion. Go well and do good. That was the message that the University of Nottingham sent out to its medical students via Twitter last week after they, like thousands of final year medics across the country, graduated early to support the NHS as it responds to the coronavirus pandemic. As reported by Varsity last week, 265 Cambridge medics have been fast-tracked in this way. Having graduated, they're now able to seek early registration with the General Medical Council and embark on the novel Foundation Interim Year Programme. This programme allows the graduates to begin working as early as May, two months earlier than usual. They may be ready, but what kind of a working environment are they stepping into? We spoke to Rich, a Cambridge medic who's graduated early to find out how he's feeling about entering the NHS at this turbulent time. Naturally, on face value, it is a scary thing to be becoming a doctor at this very moment. Uh, When you say it out loud, it's nothing short of theatrical, is it really? I mean, I became a doctor at the height of a global super infection. You know, it sounds very theatrical. Um, But I've read a lot of individual blogs from healthcare staff that are trying to dispel the use of these sort of theatrical military terminology for describing this pandemic and I don't think anyone's trying to downplay it as another day at the office but simply that the standard of care that's going to be delivered by the NHS is aiming to be as good as ever during this time so for me I'm I am nervous about the environment I'm stepping into but I'm also excited and proud to be doing my bit uh, and I'm confident in the NHS to be delivering world-class care 
whilst also supporting the new intake of doctors, nurses and other healthcare staff. And given that you'll be entering at a time when there are also shortages of personal protective equipment, do you feel any apprehension about working on the front line during the pandemic? Or have you kind of made peace as best as you can with the idea that things might be slightly difficult, but ultimately you've you know got a job to do? I, I do feel apprehension. Um, it's very worrisome. But you, you know, you hear every day now about the wonderful national response to this PPE crisis. So there's loads of positivity about this that kind of um, is is countering that uh, apprehension. I'm just hoping that I'm not going to be forced into a position where I'm endangering myself and the patients if PPE shortages do occur at my hospital. I'm just hoping that you know where possible um, we're just we're kept as safe um, as is feasible with you know the given resources. We also spoke to Casey, another final year medic who's graduated early, and we began by asking him. How does it feel to be entering the NHS at such a turbulent moment, both, you know, as we're coming up to 10 years um, of austerity, but also now in light of the COVID-19 pandemic? You know, this is kind of what I've been preparing for for the, for the last 10 years. It was about when I was like 15 or something that I wanted to be a doctor. So I guess in the next few weeks, what I've been preparing for for the last eight years is what I'm going to be doing. I'm kind of looking forward to it because that'll be like something that will always be next to your name something that is quite historical like you were the you were the cohort of medical students who were recruited for you know a historical time in medical history but i do think we're kind of thrown into the deep end like it's bad that they're not testing people in the nhs well enough people in the nhs and it's bad that there's not enough protective equipment for everyone to go in the nhs and the thing that makes it most annoying is that, like, instead of doing everything, instead of doing anything, people make it seem like they're supporting the NHS by just clapping. But clapping doesn't actually do much. And I kind of find it quite ironic that, you know, the people who are clapping for the NHS are the people who voted for, you know, a government that has, you know, reduced the funding of the NHS for the last 10 years, you know. They have voted against things like increased pay for nurses. You know, there's been multiple strikes of junior doctors during the government. And now they're all clapping. It's like, well, that doesn't do anything. We've seen that a lot of the victims of coronavirus, more so within uh, nursing or sort of care work capacities, have been, quote unquote, BAME individuals. Do you have any thoughts about inequities that are leading to adverse numbers of people from ethnic minority communities and being fatalities to coronavirus that's just how it is like in general any community that is disadvantaged any group of people that is disadvantaged are disadvantaged in pretty much every single sector of well-being whether it's health uh, employment whether it's crime whether it's anything so it's quite a sad thing and once again that's the role of the politicians to address so you know it's something that always gets me down but for me the best thing to do is you know obviously you have to work for yourself and you have to advocate for a government that does work in the interest of the disadvantaged in society the next sound we're connecting you to this week on switchboard comes from che graham the campaign's officer for the Disabled Students campaign. 
If you haven't done so already, please check out the content notes in the episode description before listening on. In this piece, Che connects some thrilling nightmares with the politics of disability. My name is Che, and like at least 3% of the population, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. That isn't the punchline yet, but we'll get there. Now, when people talk about PTSD, they tend to think of war heroes coming home and being horrible to their wives and having a freak out at the barbecue. And whilst that's all completely true, PTSD does affect a lot of people and it has a lot of different symptoms. One of the symptoms people don't always talk about is nightmares. I've had nightmares pretty much every single night since I was about 16 years old. I'd have this sinking feeling every night where it's like, okay, time to get ready for my eight hour special of whatever my brain throws at me today. Then one morning I woke up from a particularly weird nightmare and I went downstairs and I was just chatting to my friend about it over breakfast and we both started really laughing about it. And I think it was just because it was so absurd. I'd had this nightmare where basically I was in a hellscape um, being chased around by sort of demons and devils all night. And then I woke up and there was this blinking red light in the corner of the room for the fire alarm. And I was absolutely convinced in that moment where I woke up that it was the devil and I was about to be possessed. And I sort of flailed around in my bed, half fell out and then was like, oh wait, I'm just, just at home, I'm not being possessed. And and me and my friend were really laughing about this over breakfast. And I've actually started now, when I wake up, the first thing I often do is tell a friend about whatever kind of nightmare I've had. And we always end up laughing at it. And it's become a really big source of humour in my life and also really helped me deal with it. So I wanted to take the next few minutes to share with you some of my nightmares and maybe you can have a little chuckle at them too and know that it's helping me. In particular, I really want to understand why I've had three three. separate nightmares that all have involved Florence Welch from Florence and the Machine to a greater or lesser extent. The first one she featured in, I was in this alternate version of reality where on the news they'd just announced that you could get diagnosed with being ginger. And I was a bit shocked at this revelation and went to my GP and they made me fill out a bunch of forms. I don't know if you've ever been to a GP to talk about getting a diagnosis of anything that can be very intense and involve lots of form filling. And let me just put this in some context. I'm fully a a brunette. So anyway, I did that. And they sort of brought me into the room and were like, so we've ticked all the tick boxes and yeah, plain and simple, you have it. And I was like, what? And no sooner had this revelation struck me, I was basically whisked off and put on an island with a bunch of other red-headed folk. On this island, I stayed there for a bit, like in despair. And then I started rounding everybody up and we held like this huge rally. And I was like yelling through a megaphone at them. And I was going, we are 7% of the population. We just have more copper in our hair. And everyone was like, yeah, I hate you. Yeah, bro. Wow. And we all did this strange dance around a giant picture of Ed Sheeran and the Weasleys from Harry Potter. I'm in love with the shape of you. Bloody hell. 
there was this live stream broadcast put out by the BBC, which was this in-depth interview with Florence Welch, where she was speculating very publicly that she thought she might, you know, have a touch of Auburn, or maybe she was a strawberry blonde after all. And then she did a Glastonbury set and announced mid Glastonbury set that she was in fact a ginger and jumped on a speedboat and shot off to meet us on the Isle of Gingerlonia. Back on the Isle of Gingerlonia, what happened was this speedboat is coming towards us full pelt and behind it's coming this vicious sort of helicopter and it sort of crashes near our island and we're like, holy shit. And Florence is getting off and we're welcoming her in and giving her a big hug. And then from this helicopter out of the ocean, like walks the visage of Ozzy Osbourne. And he's looking at us in this kind of intense standoff and I'm going up to him and I can see behind him are coming all of these blondes and people with black hair and people with brown hair and I kind of have this standoff and I'm like I am the leader of the Isle of Gingerlonia declare your purpose and he's like all my life I have strongly identified with having gothic black hair and then he's like, it actually turns out I'm just a high functioning ginger. And we welcome him in as well. And we all get, get these kind of blueprint designs for crazy machines and we speed back to mainland UK. But the UK army has actually met us there and is waiting on the beach with a bunch of tanks. So I just get my megaphone and I'm like, well, here we go. And I'm yelling at them like, we demand rights. We demand equality. We're no different from you. And then... The tanks literally just open fire and absolutely blast me awake. So So what what does this mean? Well, basically, it's probably just another metaphor for my repressed bisexuality, isn't it? So basically, if you or anyone you know struggles with PTSD and nightmares, maybe talking about it can be good and also maybe get help because that will probably be better. But obviously it's not always as simple as just being able to get help. And I feel like maybe that dream comes from a sort of society we live in where it can be very traumatic to seek help and ask for help and navigate diagnoses and end up just getting ostracized and otherized for it anyway and Florence Welch I feel like she gets this not because she is a brunette and not a ginger or at least I think so I haven't looked recently but because she has dyspraxia which is a condition that can affect coordination movement and learning growing up and into adulthood and so she can probably relate and I feel like maybe I keep dreaming of her because I feel like people with all kinds of disabilities can look after each other and maybe my nightmares are just another way of reminding me that we basically have to set up an island together and then fight to the death for our rights. The next segment on Switchboard this week is a special report on the leaking last week of an internal Labour Party report which unveiled electoral sabotage and a toxic culture of bullying, harassment and racism within the Labour Party bureaucracy. For most of those members, in 2017, people slogged their guts out in that general election campaign. The voice of former Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. 
in all weathers, knocking on the doors, delivering the leaflets, hitting those phone banks. And people, I've never seen an election campaign like it, mass, mass campaign. People's creativity was incredible as well, you have to admit. It was a great campaign. And we came so close. We just, you know, the latest calculation is if spread about 2,500 votes in a number of constituencies, we would have had a Labour government. In that extraordinary 2017 general election campaign, with all its twists and turns, on polling day, Labour ended up receiving a monumental 40% of the popular vote, just 2% behind the Conservatives' 42.3%. Students were among those hundreds of thousands of Labour Party members who campaigned hard for Labour throughout the campaign. But was it all for nothing? Last week, a report intended to form part of evidence submitted to the EHRC's investigation into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party was leaked. The report sought to give context to the EHRC's investigation, but it also ended up exposing scandalous political sabotage within the party. It shows that some of the most senior staff at Labour HQ undermined Labour's 2017 election campaign from the inside, and may well have cost Labour the chance to form a government. The report also suggests that some of the same people were delaying action on anti-Semitism in order to undermine then-leader Jeremy Corbyn. The 800-page report also highlighted a toxic culture of bullying, harassment and racism going right to the party bureaucracy. This week, Jed Asimota, Cambridge University Labour Club's BME officer, covered the story for Varsity. So what were his initial reactions on reading the report? It was really incredible. Um, every paragraph was just crazy. All the kind of screenshots and the um, leaked conversations and stuff. Um, it was, yeah, it's quite sad to read actually. Um, pretty painful considering there was a lot of hope around the 2017 election. And it seems kind of impossible from coming from such a poor position to start with to be able to basically almost form a government. Um, I think that was quite um, sad that all the effort put in was kind of wasted. Uh, I think on the other side as well, there was a lot of, um, well, I was very sad to see the anti-Semitism and the racism within the party that seemed almost mainstream and even endemic in the party. And as a black man involved with Labour, how did you feel seeing comments made about Diane Abbott by senior staffers? Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking. It's really not what you want to be reading. Um, you'd expect that from the opposition, you'd expect that from other parties, but to have that within your own party, it really shows that um, there are a lot of issues in the Labour Party that we're not dealing with and that um, people like Diane Abbott will obviously feel alone in this kind of struggle, being um, a prominent black woman who is vilified in the media and in the press. And I think that you'd want to have that support of people on your own side and to not even have that is just... Um, it's really sad, I think. And what do you think of the claim that some have made regarding institutional racism and the fact that it only seems to become important when it serves a factional point? Um, yeah, I think that um, virtue signalling and point scoring on issues like that is really um, easy to do. And I think that often the Labour Party is um, just expects that because it says it's a party of anti-racism that that is the case and there's a lot of kind of lip service on that. And I think that um, there's been a lot of complacency and it needs to work harder. And um, I think it needs to do so with kind of um, better and more kind of pure intentions rather than um, to kind of smear its political opponents, whatever, you know, say that there's um, Islamophobia in the, in the Tory party, um, but not to deal with the kind of issues in the Labour Party of anti-blackness and um, kind of Islamophobia in, the, in our own party is obviously disingenuous and it's wrong, really. And on the point of more solidarity with and kind of for black MPs, what do you think the party could do to handle um, anti-black racism within 
um, the institution is because as we know now, comments have been made that are quite frankly unacceptable. However, there doesn't seem to be any sort of, um, you know, reprimand for those comments. Um, yeah, I think that perhaps a report on the same scale was the anti-Semitism report into um, anti-Black racism and into Islamophobia um, would be would be welcome. I think that uh, would be a good idea. I think that also there needs to be greater representation in the kind of party bureaucracy. So a lot of the kind of um, comments and stuff that we've been seeing has been from people who are who work in the Labour Party HQ, and I don't think that is diverse as it could be. Whereas obviously the Parliamentary Labour Party is getting better in terms of representation of different groups. I think that there is a kind of um, metropolitan um, white clique within the um, Labour bureaucracy and the party HQ that is um, kind of holding the party from moving forward. And you can read Jed's article on the leaked report in the opinion section of the Varsity website. Our final segment on Switchboard is Varsity Out Loud. This week we hear Shamira Lynn's love letter to Cambridge. In this letter she discusses her efforts to decolonise the English tripos during her time as undergraduate faculty representative, treasuring above all the solidarity she found through this process. Finding solidarity in a space that wasn't designed for me by Shamira Lynn. For as long as I can remember, I wanted to be part white. Not fully white, just 20% would do. White enough not to be ashamed of my mixed Asian heritage. This was not something I understood consciously. Rather, it was embedded in the essence of my upbringing. At the age of seven, I skimmed through an unabridged version of Shakespeare's collected works. As I grew older, I developed an unashamedly British accent after watching Simon Cowell on television, gradually erasing my Manglish inflections and cadences. My current voice bears home county's trappings, class, bath and path, pronounced in a way that would put Jacob Rees' mock to shame. Hailing from Malaysia and having never stepped foot in the United Kingdom until I came here for university, this remains, of course, incredibly out of place at best and pretentious at worst. More importantly, this was an ossified symbol of the reproduction of colonial knowledge in every fibre of my being. I grew up being taught seemingly contradictory ideas to embrace diversity while fashioning myself to suit the Western educational model and its underpinning colonialism. Shakespeare was more valuable than knowing writers from my numerous cultures, such as Arundhati Roy and Tash Al. This value judgment is reiterated by the Cambridge English faculty's insistence to teach an entire compulsory term on Shakespeare alone. Sitting in a medieval lecture in my first term at Cambridge, then, posed a radical challenge to my entire worldview. It suddenly occurred to me that Eurocentric models of Christianity and life, amongst other strands of thought, in every pale, male and stale medieval text, except Marjorie Kemp and Julian of Norwich, bore no relevance to my identity. Why was I expected to not only have a working knowledge of Latin by my supervisor, but to somehow also possessed a sophisticated understanding of the Bible? My first year at Cambridge was marked by feelings of deep inadequacy, questioning my sense of epistemic belonging. Simultaneously, I was lurched into discovering severe clinical depression and other mental health issues, which my therapist and I have since established as partly linked to how other I felt as a Malaysian woman. 
reading English in a space that clearly wasn't designed for someone like me. Somewhere among this, however, I came across the idea of decolonizing the canon. Peers from varying backgrounds had spoken about it, and I stumbled upon Lola Olufemi's amazing work at the university. I decided then, at the start of second year, to run for undergraduate faculty representative to the English faculty to enact change on a structural level. This would turn out to be a touchstone to guide me through my three years at Cambridge. I had finally found a way to read English while challenging the canon I had grown to personally dislike. I could finally channel my deep-seated anger productively, interrogating all that I did via the lens of decolonization. More importantly, I could stop trying to be someone I'm not and start being the person I've always been. In Decolonizing the University, Dalia Gabriel writes aptly about the effort extending beyond universities. To do this kind of work, decolonization in the university is to dig where you are, rather than to view the university as the primary source where transformation happens. The university space as a transformative force to connect what is happening inside the institution to the outside. During my tenure as faculty representative, decolonizing developed my awareness of my own positionality, enabling my growth as a scholar. More importantly, I was a member of society committed to a shared cause. I could go beyond myself to enact structural and social change while simultaneously acknowledging the reasons that drive my work, acutely personal reasons that have grown into a focus on the big picture. Recently, a faculty member I worked with closely described my tenure as one of an activist. I'd like to think that his amazing pun holds true. I was quick to learn, however, that a number of high-ranking individuals within the faculty were actively unaware of what decolonizing meant on a wider level. A common notion surrounding decolonization involves diversifying the canon through including a few BAME authors for representation. Diversity here is used as a broad term, often as a synonym for decolonization, which is emphatically untrue. I've exited numerous faculty meetings and supervisions broken and beyond repair. My closest friends have noted that most of our conversations revolve around the failure of the English faculty to go beyond individualistic notions of decolonization. I have invested countless hours in therapy, trying to make sense of the institutional racism and emotional labor I've had to bear as a woman of color, trying to explain why decolonization is academically robust and integral to honest pedagogy. I've tried to make sense of why I've had to prove that an examination of travel writing from Mandeville onwards without underpinning decolonization is plainly poor scholarship. These dynamics were replicated in a majority of my part one supervisions where supervisors were often unable and sometimes unwilling to offer any sort of thought concerning empire and race, so much so that I've written my own reading lists for all three years of my degree. Nonetheless, this profound pain has imbued within me the pricelessness of solidarity and love. Solidarity in BAME-specific contexts, where I grew to understand my cultural identity. Solidarity in the life-changing conversations I've had with peers and scholars alike. 
demonstrating a common will to enact decolonizing as a catalyst to wider social change within the university and beyond. Solidarity in the friendships made from that same will. Love. For the lecturers and supervisors I had doing the post-colonial module, as they encouraged myself and many peers from BME backgrounds to speak in our own voices, to resist the Western University and its active enactment of colonial pedagogy. Boundless love for a course that carves spaces for people like myself without losing sight of decolonization as an interrogation of structures rather than individual betterment within pre-existing structures. The potency of this love will remain for a lifetime. I carry it within me as I further my academic career, hoping to express the drumming resonance decolonization bears within academia in all academic work I hope to do. This is a love letter to those whose paths I've crossed and shared in this journey, to those who will continue the important work being achieved within Cambridge and around the world. Thank you for allowing this unashamedly brown girl in a white space to come to terms with herself. Thank you to everyone who contributed to Switchboard this week. If you're interested in getting involved, please join the Contributes group, which you can find on our Facebook page. Please subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating if you feel like it. Please also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for Varsity Switchboard. Switchboard is produced by Olivia Hilton-Pennant and Matt Evan-Green. Thank you.